The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. You ever walked across an old kind of rickety bridge, and as you're walking across, you, you wonder, am I actually going to make it across this thing? I don't know. I'm a little worried. Um, or maybe you've decided to, ro- to ride a roller coaster at the carnival. It's your first mistake. And you're kind of looking at this ride, and you're inspecting the rusty screws and the bolts that are holding it together, and you give your ticket to this guy who, let's just say, doesn't present to be as the most trustworthy person in the world. He's pushing the buttons on this machine that you're putting your life into. Now, this feeling of instability and danger kind of washes over you. Maybe that's close, something like what it felt like to be part of the the Old Testament kingdom under David during this season in our text this morning. We've seen the roller coaster ride of his rule. And just when we think that we're about to hit a smooth patch, uh, there's another dip, another rebellion, more instability. And this, if we've lived much life, no, is part of living in a broken world. It all started to go downhill in chapter 11 uh, when David took another man's wife. And then he did, tried to deceive that man uh, to kind of get out of the consequences of his sin. And when that didn't work, he ended up having that man killed. God then rebuked David for his sin and he promised that the sword would not depart from his house and that evil would rise up even from his own family. And as we've studied, particularly last week, we have seen just that. One of David's sons raped one of David's daughters. Another of his sons killed him for it. Then that son, after fleeing, came home and started a rebellion against David that caused David to flee. Last week we saw that story of Absalom's rebellion and how God was actually in the midst of all that chaos using it to both discipline David and then to honor his promises. Those promises of 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, are still lingering in the background even alongside these promises of discipline to David for his sin. So we're not headed into smooth sailing in chapter 20. We see another rebellion. We're going to be looking at chapters 20 and 21 this morning. And in chapter 20, we sort of wrap up the history of David's rule as king. And it ends with the rebellion of a man named Sheba. And so chapter 20 tells the story of how Sheba leads many of the northern tribes to leave David. And also, however, how David quickly responds and the rebellion is put down. Again, we see the, the consequences of sin at work alongside God's promises and his faithfulness. And then chapter 21 sort of begins the end, really, of the, the book as a whole. Many scholars call it the appendix of Second Samuel. The timeline for these chapters, 21 through 24, is, is looser. It's more of, a, of an overview to highlight David's reign, some important events, and reminding us of, his, of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. It's really arranged poetically and intentionally, not surprisingly, by the author. And it, it makes this, this chiasm, which is just a tool used in the Bible and to, to highlight kind of the main point of the, of the text. 
So we'll see sort of this pattern. We'll see God's wrath, both in chapters 21 that we're looking at together um, this morning and chapter 24. Then we're going to see David's mighty men and some of his victories highlighted both in chapter 21 and then in chapter 23. And then kind of in the middle of those, those kind of borders, you see David's song in chapter 22 as he is praising God and, and responding to all that God has done. And then David's last words in chapter 23 are recorded there. And all of this, we're left with both this reality of the consequences of sin alongside the power of God's grace and his faithfulness to keep his covenant promises. And friends, this is what we need to hear today. God is faithful to keep his promises. Sin is destructive and seductive and deceptive. And God has made a way for us to be cleansed and forgiven and made new. And he has purchased a kingdom for us that is not rickety and unstable. God's kingdom is unshakable. God is in control and his kingdom is unshakable. That's the main point of the sermon this morning. And as we go through these chapters, I just want to point out some marks of what it's like to live in a broken world. I'm going to point out four things, and these aren't listed in your bulletin, but there's a space there in your bulletin. If you'd like to take notes, I'll give you these four marks at the beginning. Four marks of life in a broken world. Number one, we see the mark of instability. Instability. Number two, sadness. Sadness. Number three, guilt. Guilt. And number four, God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. So you'll see that three out of those four marks are results of sin. We see the instability that sin brings, the sadness and the guilt that comes from sin. But we also see God's grace in the gospel that gives us hope in this promise of new life and security in Christ. He is faithful. And I just pray that you would find that security in the rock, on the rock of Christ Jesus in this broken world. And it is naturally marked by, number one, instability. So this is our first mark that we see in a broken world, instability. And before we read about Sheba and more about his rebellion, we need to be reminded of the end of chapter 19, where we left off last week, and the climate of David's kingdom, just after Absalom's rebellion. It was finally put down, and you would think all is well. But if you remember, the people of Israel and Judah were actually bickering back and forth about who had more of a share in David. Who was more faithful to him? Who was closer to him? Who was more loyal? So the men of Israel said they did. They had 10 shares in David. They had these 10 tribes that were sort of um, allocated there to David. And the men of Judah said they did. For They were the ones who initially had brought David home from exile. And he was from their tribe after all. And the chapter ended with a note that, that the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. It doesn't sound like a a good conversation, edifying, you know, back and forth. It doesn't sound like a restored and stable kingdom, but one is on, that's on the brink of fracture, the brink of fracture. And that's what we see happening in verse 1 of chapter 20. Look there. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bitri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. 
So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bitri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. You quickly learn the author's opinion of Sheba. He is a worthless man. Uh, This is a familiar phrase in Samuel. If you remember, it means something like son of Belial, which is a son of rebellion or death or wickedness, even maybe even hell. If you remember Hannah back in 1 Samuel said she is not, did not want to be a daughter of Belial. The sons of Eli were called sons of Belial. Nabal, the fool, was also a son of Belial, a worthless man. And most recently, Shema, Shemai cursed David as a man of Belial. So this just takes out the guesswork of kind of Sheba's character. We know who he is and what he's about. But it's telling there in verse 2, isn't it, that all the men of Israel follow him. They hear this worthless man calling out against David and they follow him. It just tells you how divided and fragile things were in Israel. But it's not just in Israel as a, as a group, as a whole, a nation, but even among David's own men. Verse 4 tells us that David assigned Amasa to go and gather the men of Judah within three days and march against this threat. So if you remember, Amasa was appointed general by Absalom during the rebellion, and David left him in charge. It's kind of a sign of goodwill. But he doesn't come through within the right timetable. Within three days, nothing happens. And so David moves on then to Abishai. And Abishai is going to take care of things. And Abishai, if you remember, is Joab's brother. Joab's been a central theme in our story. Joab's actually not in the picture here at the moment. So clearly he's been demoted by David probably for the way that he disobeyed David's orders again and killed Absalom when David said not to. But Joab is still lingering in the background. Notice when the men leave, one group is described there as Joab's men in verse 7. And we soon learn that Joab is with those men and still very much in charge. Look at verse 8 of chapter 20. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now, get the picture. Amasa had gone out trying to gather these tribes of Judah, and David said he wasn't doing it in time, and so he sends out this new group of soldiers. Now, Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bitri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Here he is again. We know that Joab doesn't take well to being demoted and he kills his superior in cold blood. It seems like he he kind of plans this out. He's walking towards him and leans over and this dagger falls out. And so he picks it up with his left hand. Usually the right hand would be the hand that you would use for combat. And he walks closely to Amasa and kind of grabs his beard as a sign of affection. He's going to kiss him and then stabs him with the other hand. There's no words, only Joab's lethal blow, and then he just moves on. And his servant kind of steps in and makes it clear that anyone who has a problem with this is going to end up just like Amasa here on the side of the road. 
And he tries to say, if you're for David, you'll be for Joab. But he sort of just says, if you're for Joab, you'll be for Joab. And, and then be for Joab. And then there's David. Those two realities we're going to see are at odds. Friends, note this about Joab. In all of his sin and clear disobedience, he thought that he was being loyal to David. In all of his sin and clear disobedience, he thinks he's being loyal to David. He thought that because his actions were were honoring to the king. But in every sense and in every way, Joab departs from David's will and David's ways. We see it over and over again. He killed Abner, he killed Absalom, and now Amasa for his own gain against David's orders. So Joab is officially for David and doing things for David and in David's name, but in reality, he is for himself. And that is just a helpful warning, a helpful picture. Just see Joab is kind of the, the anti-disciple. And, and, and reminds us of our own need for a radical heart change, for regeneration, for conversion. We must be made new and given a heart that desires to obey the words of Jesus while the Holy Spirit is making us more like Jesus. He is our king and as followers of King Jesus, we're to represent him by obeying his will and walking in his ways. Joab was a follower of David in name only. And friend, let me ask you this morning, are you a follower of Jesus in name only? Doing some things for Jesus, attending some some meetings, checking some boxes, but in reality, living for yourself. Jesus gives a clear warning for us about that. Matthew 7, verses 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And we're not loyal to Jesus as we're also simultaneously disobedient to his words. We cannot be committed to Jesus and committed to exalting ourselves at the same time. And when leaders like Joab represent the kingdom, you would expect some instability and some disunity as a result. Just look at the summary of David's kind of reign there in verse 23 of chapter 20. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. This is kind of a summary of David's progress in his kingdom, really from chapters 9 all the way to chapter 20. And if you remember, there was another summary section back in chapter 8. Why don't you just flip your Bible there, chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. I won't read all of this, but I just want you to see how that section also summarizes David's reign up to that point. If you were to take those two paragraphs and compare them, you would see kind of where the kingdom, I think, is is heading. There are a few things that are different. The first line there in chapter 8 shows how David ruled with justice and equity with all the people. Well, that line is actually missing from chapter 20. And then you see something new in chapter 20 that wasn't there in chapter 8. There's now someone in charge of forced labor. 
Verse 24. Friends, that's not a good development. Some sort of slavery. And in due time, that would include Israelites. And that would lead to a more permanent division in the kingdom. It's a good summary of of David's kingdom where it is now. Still going. God's promises are holding it up, but it is fragile and divided and unstable. You might feel that describes your life or my life sometimes. Another mark that you see here of life in a broken world, number two, is the mark of sadness. Number two, sadness. Now, before you hear how Sheba's rebellion ends, we need to go back to a very short but sad verse in chapter 20, verse 3. Look with me there. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines who he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. I know this is not a concept that we see a lot today in our lives, this idea of having multiple wives and and concubines as, as a practice that is probably picked up by Israel through its kind of cultural surroundings. Um, God's intent is very clear for marriage, that it's between one man and one woman. And God actually instructs, especially the king of Israel, not to multiply wives in Deuteronomy 17. However, we do see in Scripture instructions for the protection of these women, including concubines. They did also bear children, um, and and those children were, were seen as perhaps a lower level Uh, of the family, but still part of the family. Listen, there's all kinds of problems that resulted from this, which we don't have time to go into. But what I just want to point out is that these are essentially David's wives, and that relationship has forever been changed by sin. It's a very sad picture. It's ultimately David's sin that brought about the situation. And underneath that, it was Absalom who took these women and slept with them as a sign of taking over the kingdom. All of this to fulfill, if you remember, God's word of discipline to David. Now we see David providing for them, but they are essentially left to live this solitary life apart from their their husband and the rest of the kingdom. One author describes their situation this way. All the joy and brightness was taken out of their lives and personal freedom was denied them. They were doomed of no fault of theirs to the weary lot of captives, cursing the day probably when their beauty had brought them into the palace and wishing they could exchange lots with the humblest of their sisters that breathed the air of freedom. Friends, this sad picture takes its place alongside a long line of tragic events that are resulting from the sin that we've seen about, and even in our own study, even in this passage. Just think about the death of Amasa, killed in cold blood. If you continue to read there in chapter 20, he's actually kicked over to the side of the road and covered up with a garment so he wouldn't distract soldiers as they walked by. We even pity Sheba, who, who, who found out where rebellion leads. You continue to read there in chapter 20, Joab and the army attacked the city where he was hiding in Abel. And after talking with this wise woman at the gates, verses 14 and following, all the way down to verse 22, they work out this deal to take care of Sheba and Joab will call off the troops. Look at verse 22. 
of chapter 20. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bitri, and threw it out to Joab, we would assume, over the walls. So he blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Perhaps an even more tragic picture comes in chapter 21 when another of Saul's concubines is mourning the life of her sons that were hanged or they were left to hang outdoors because of Saul's sin against the people of Gibeon. Her name was Rizpah. And we read of her mourning in chapter 21, verse 10. Look there, chapter 21, verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. Just imagine that scene. A mother who is sitting next to the rotting corpses of her sons, not leaving their side. They were taken away from her. She's there to keep away the animals and the birds, watching their decaying bodies probably for months until the Lord brings rain, sleeping outside in that hot sun. And the consequences of sin are dangerous and destructive. And here we see tragically sad. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for coming and, and being, being present and listening to this, this message. Um, I wonder if you've ever connected the sadness and the tragedies of life with the Bible's teaching on sin. From the beginning of creation, the Bible repeats this refrain, sin brings death. Sin is rebellion against God by ignoring him, by disobeying his commands, by not worshiping and loving him as we ought, by treating others with hatred, by exalting ourselves. This sin actually resides in us. The sadness actually begins in our hearts and then it comes out from there. And others, sin also comes out and sometimes onto us. This world is broken because of sin. And although we would like to fix all the brokenness out there and make it all better, friends, we just know from our own experience, what the Bible says, that is not within our power. We first need to come to grips with the cause and effect. And then we can think about the cure. Friend, have you considered your sin against God? Have you considered what that sin deserves? I hope that you'll think carefully about that this morning as we study this passage. If you're hurting this morning and in the the depths of sadness, I hope that you will cry out to Christ, cry out to God. And we see another consequence of sin that we see in our passage, not just sadness, but also guilt. Number three, guilt. Moving here now to chapter 21, it kind of breaks down in two sections. And the first section deals with a famine, a period of three years that famine comes into the land. We're not exactly sure when. And it's this section that I want us to to think about. See what David does in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. 
And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. And so David seeks the Lord. He, he prays to end the famine in the land. Uh, that's an encouraging picture for us. David praying for relief for the sake of the people, the king going to God. Um, and then God, notice, mercifully reveals to David the reason for the famine. That there is this problem with guilt, specifically blood guilt. And, and honestly, today as Christians, we, we look out and we see a lot of things like this and we don't have this, this privilege of knowing exactly why things happen. We are more like Job. And if you just read through the book of Job, you see all the things that he goes through and the way that he responds without knowing what we as the reader know. That God is actually working these things out and behind these things and going to protect him. Job doesn't know those things. He is simply trusting God every day. Friends, that's where we find ourselves. But here, here David understands from God, this is why this is happening, this blood guilt. And the author assumes here in this story um, that we know something about the Old Testament, something about the history of people, the people of Israel, particularly in the book of Joshua and the Gibeonites. Uh, you have to go back to Joshua 9 when the Gibeonites, really the, the Amorites, they actually tricked Israel's leaders into swearing an oath to spare them, saying they were not actually original inhabitants of, of the land. And so they, they, they do that. Joshua and other leaders uh, covenanted in Yahweh's name to give them immunity. Not to destroy them, but to give them a share in the land. And, and so that's the background of this covenant that's been made before God. But at, then at some point, again, we don't know the details, in his zeal for Israel, no surprise when we think about Saul, he goes and puts these Gibeonites to death. He strikes them down. In other words, Saul breaks the covenant. And now there is this guilt abiding on him and his house. And do you know when a covenant is made, it is cut. The animal that is made in the sacrifice is sliced in two and both parties would then walk between the remains of that animal as if to say, if I break my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. And the promise was broken. And now there is blood guilt to be paid. God's wrath is actually kindled. And David asks what it is that will satisfy this debt. And friend, if that puzzles you this morning, um, just remember that we have a tendency, particularly as Americans, to undervalue the holiness of God. And we kind of in our own mind will think, well, why doesn't he just sort of let it go? I mean, it was a promise, but it's, no, it's not that big of a deal. Let's, let's go back and make some amendments to it. But friends, that is not God's way. God is Holy. He does not change. He is completely righteous. And we see that. David, David comes to them in verse three. Look at what he says. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And that word atonement is a very, very important word. It, it means to, to make payment, to make expiation, to take away the guilt of sin. Moses said this in Numbers 35, verse 33, you shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. 
The Gibeonites are saying, Saul has spilled our blood, he has broken the covenant, and therefore blood must be shed. Verse 5. Then they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Saul's sin is particularly, I think, heinous because he is acting as Israel's representative, as her king. So in that sense, all of Israel is represented by him and therefore equally guilty, equally implicated as covenant breakers. And so his sin has national implications and familial implications. There's kind of a crossover there in his his own tribe, his own house. And so seven of his sons are executed They're either hanged or they're impaled and then hung up in some way. And then, so so after kind of they're listed who they were, including Rizpah's sons, remember the mourning mother, we read this in verse 9 of chapter 21. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. We would assume there actually was no harvest. That's just a note on the timing because of the famine. Friend, this is a very difficult, sad scene. And we may not, I may not be able to resolve all of my questions about it. Like, is this really God's plan or is this the Gibeonites' plan? And is David going along with it? And and how's that work out? but, But I think part of the point is to show and illustrate how painful and gory and terrible atonement really is. You see the pain of loss associated with it. And that points us to just how terrible sin really is and how seriously God takes it. Atonement, friends, is more than a doctrine just to be analyzed, a concept, an abstraction, to be explained or even to be sung about. It's a real thing, and it is really gruesome. Any Israelite would know this really well, as they were used to dragging some of their most precious animals to the tabernacle and having to slit their throats and skin them and cut them to pieces and wash out their insides and their legs. This is a nasty and repulsive business, dripping, bloody, smelly mess, just the stench of death hangs heavy where atonement takes place. And Rispa is mourning the loss of her sons for days and days on end. Just see that. See that picture. That's what I think we're meant to see is the reality of what what atonement looks like, a picture of it. David hears about what Rispa is doing in her mourning, and I think it spurs him on to this act of compassion that we read about in verse 11. Turn, look, look there, verse 11. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the, con- the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines killed Saul of Gilboa. And he brought them up 
from there, brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Friends, I'll admit there's, there's mystery here and exactly the way this kind of cosmically works out. Was it David's act of kindness to bury these men with Saul and Jonathan along with this sacrifice? We don't know all the answers, but we do see that the Lord responded to this plea after all these things took place. So atonement, or at least a shadow picture of it has been made. As we know that sin carries with it consequences and we are guilty by virtue of our association, not with Saul, but with our father, Adam. His transgression infects and implicates us as well. He was our representative and head and that makes his sin actually our sin. Blood guilt rests on us. We, we sin because we're sinners. We deserve justice. We too are guilty. Friend, as we approach this Easter season, this is a great time just seasonally for you to meditate on this reality. You should meditate it on every day. But just ask the question, where am I going to go with my guilt? Where will I turn for atonement? How will things be made right between me and this holy God? And I want you to know this morning that there is hope for you, even in a broken world. The fourth mark that we see of living in a broken world is God's faithfulness. Number four, God's faithfulness. Did you notice in the search for a son of Saul to be executed that David clearly and purposely passed over one man in particular? Look at verse 7 of chapter 21. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So here, right in the middle of this story of covenant breaking, And all the results of that, we see a king keeping his word, keeping covenant, and all of the results of that. David spares Mephibosheth because he had promised Jonathan before the Lord that he would. Interesting, if you read the story, one of Saul's sons is named Mephibosheth also, which I think is just a reminder of the sheer grace at work in Jonathan's son through David's faithfulness to the covenant that he made. Mephibosheth is safe, even though he deserves the same judgment as the others. Friend, I just hope that you would put yourself there as, as the call goes out for any of Saul's relatives and someone grabs Mephibosheth and says, here's one. And David comes to his aid and says, no, no, this one is safe. This one is safe. He is under the blood of the covenant. That's the first kind of part of chapter 21. The second part of the chapter, you continue to just see God's faithfulness unfold, especially through the men that have protected and fought for David, his mighty men. So I won't make a lot of comment on that section, but I do want to read it because it's just really 
Honestly, it's really cool. So look at chapter 21, verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishibanab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai, the Hushadite, struck down Soph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elnon, the son of Jari Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whom spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Twenty-four in number. And he also was a descendant from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. What a great just story from the Bible. These giants are literally descendants of Rapha, which may actually be a person, or more likely is a group called the Rephaim, who we know from other passages, uh, just for their humongous size. And here we see David getting a little slower and a little bit weaker. And nevertheless, God, through David's men, taking care of him. Uh, Perhaps the Goliath here um, of verse 20 is the brother of Goliath. We see the the chronicle in 1 Chronicles 20 verse 5, identifying him that way. And then this guy with 24 digits. It's just scary. Like this dude, seriously. But his mistake was he taunted Israel, which is the same thing Goliath did. He is taunting Israel's God. And we're just reminded of God's faithfulness to his promises. Especially 2 Samuel 3, verse 18, he said, Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all of their enemies. God is just keeping his word. He is faithful, even in a broken world. And some of us just need to hear that and be reminded of that this morning. God is faithful to his promises to keep you, to work all things together for your good, to never leave you, to never forsake you. Even when you're weak like David, notice it's not David's strength that is keeping him. It is God's faithfulness to his promise. He is giving us and has given us all that we need and more in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's in Christ that God's true faithfulness shines forth. Friend, do you know that? Do you know Jesus? A thousand years after David's kingdom that we see happening here, Jesus comes, David's greater son, to bring a kingdom the kingdom, the unshakable kingdom. Even though it feels like often things are unstable and fragile, as God's people, we actually stand on the iron-clad prayer of Jesus in John 17. He prayed this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and they may be one, even as we are one. 
and just hear the keeping power of God in your life if you're a Christian. No matter how unstable things may feel. And hear the unity that comes through being in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are one, united in Christ. And nothing should stand in the way of that unity that Christ has purchased. And just let that be kind of a practical application and encouragement to you and maybe even pursuing someone this week that you've noticed your relationship has become a little bit icy for whatever reason. The gospel reconciles us and gives us a ministry of reconciliation. Surely that should begin with our own relationships with one another. David's men could make it as long as the lamp of Israel was guiding them. They said, don't quench the lamp of Israel. Well, friends, that lamp ultimately points to Jesus, the light of the world. When, when we will come and follow him, we will walk in unity, not in darkness. Friend, come to Jesus this morning and bring your sadness. We, we see David's attempt to deal with the sadness in the story. He attempts to deal with the, the concubines. He attempts to, to help and deal with Rizpah. We would, we would walk away from that saying, ultimately, that, that it's incomplete. This text cries out for someone else who would come and really deal with the deep wounds and make all these wrongs right. And those of us in this room that are, that are believers, that are Christians, know that until Jesus comes to make all things new, we will often be sorrowful with the consequences that sin brings and with the brokenness of this world. But being able to grieve deeply and have hope is actually what sets us apart from the rest of the world. We can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing, Paul says, because we know how the story ends. We know the promises are true from Isaiah 61. The promises of the one who would bring good news to the poor, who sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. For it's knowing the end changes everything, the way that we go through our lives. We can sing those words of the hymn loudly, melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drown, drive the gloom of doubt away, giver of immortal gladness. Fill us with the light of day. And why are we able to sing that? Why are we able to, to pray that? It's because our guilt has been removed. Atonement is not just a theological idea for us. It is our life. It's a reality that happened. Whips and thorns and nails and hammers and spears and blood and water on the ground. Blood guilt rested on all of God's people and God the Son who was sinless and holy laid down his life and was hanged on a tree to bear the curse of his people, to make atonement, propitiation, expiation for our sins. Jesus died to take God's wrath for his people. He absorbed it. He paid it all. And then he rose from the grave victorious over sin and death, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's God's faithfulness is shown nowhere more clearly than the bloody cross and the empty tomb. 
And if you turn from your sins and repent and believe that Christ died for your sins and was raised, you too can be saved. Like Mephibosheth, you can be safe in the grace of God for you, knowing that your penalty has been paid by someone else. This is Jesus' promise to you, John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Friends, this is God's kingdom. And Jesus is God's true king. And his kingdom is unshakable, even in a broken world. And are you a citizen of that kingdom? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that this morning we would rejoice. Those of us who know our citizenship is in heaven, that we would let all of the the weight of our anxiety and our trouble and our sadness rest on the strong shoulders of Jesus. And Lord, for any in this room that that don't know you and, and are far from you, Lord, we pray you would open their eyes and their heart and draw them to you. Lord, help them to see their need for Christ. Show them Jesus. Lord, help us as a church to be faithful to this message, to this news in the way in which we gather and seek to be a witness intentionally in this world. Lord, we pray that you would would draw men and women to yourself, that many would come to know this, this good news. Lord, we love you and we praise you for your death for us and that you rose from the grave. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.